Okay. Have you got your little recorder there as well? Yeah, yeah. I'm putting it on okay. right now. Okay, so this is the Shirley Cheskel Shir Iluin Yishmosim Ephraim Shulben Abramaria Cohen Chaya Tova Bath Eliezer Mendela Cohen. And additionally today, um, I want to dedicate the Shir to Rebbe Avram Ben Yisrael Ben Yomin HaKohen, uh, Ben Friedman's father, uh, whose Yorkside it is tonight, and also to Rabbi Yosef Shmuel Ben Svi, my father, whose Yorkside it is today. So um, that everyone should have a, all those people should have an Ilun Yishoma from the Shia. Um, now, where are we up to? We're up to chapter 12, finally, chapter 12 uh, of Yechezkel. And um, we start off just after four chapters of visions, and now God speaks to Yechezkel. Hashem God spoke to me like this. Ben Adam, son of man. You are sitting in the middle of a rebellious house. They have eyes but don't see. They have ears but they do not hear. Well, they are a rebellious house. Uh, nothing could be more appropriate for the state we find ourselves in the land of Israel today than a possible like that. Eyes that don't see and ears that don't hear. So what's this all about? So after the completion of a four chapter vision of Yechezkel from chapters 8 through 11, Yechezkel uh, has now explained, we learned last week right at the end of chapter 11, Yechezkel explained what he had seen in that vision, in that extended vision, to the elders of Yehuda, who were sitting in his living room in Babylonia. And uh, the last verse of chapter 11 uh, explains it all. I told the people, the elders of the exile, everything that God had showed me. Uh, and it would appear from these first two verses in chapter 12, um that neither of the of the elders or the general populace of uh, the first wave of the Babylonian exile uh paid very much attention to the dark imagery that Yefeskel portrayed to them uh, at the end of the last chapter. And this lack of any type of positive response from the Jews uh that are already in exile. Remember the exile, these are people who in, in Babylon already, uh, who came, uh, with the original wave of exile six years earlier, uh, with King Jehoiachin. And that exile is now in its sixth year. We're five years away from the destruction of the first temple. And they just not responding. They're not responding to, uh, what Yechezkel has told them. And so God, so to speak, comes up with another rebuke, another way of rebuking them. And he's going to find an alternative solution to hopefully wake them up, uh, to look at their situation, their situation in Babylonia and the prevailing situation in Yerushalayim. And finally, listen to the warnings of the prophet uh, and do something about their current situation. And 
just as an introduction, like a precy of the intent of the upcoming prophecy, we have the words of the Abarbanel. He says, Basalf base hamariato yoshi. You, um, are sitting in the middle of a rebellious house. You, people who should know better, who were exiled, the cream of Yerushalayim, who were exiled with King Yehoiachin six years earlier, and despite them being shunted into exile, and having heard the dark vision that Yechezkel has just described to to them, about what was going to happen to Yerushalayim in chapters 8 through 11, these Jews still refused to listen to the message of the prophets, and specifically to the words of Yechezkel, Lochain Omar Alehem. And therefore God accuses them, Asher Enaim Lohem Liros, you have eyes but refuse to see. Oznaim Lohem Lishma Velo you've got ears but you refuse to listen. Ki Beis Merihem, and that's a prima facie case, of a rebellious people. And this rebuke is an introduction to what will happen next because the people refuse to look at their current situation, on their current situation, and listen to the prophet. Yechesel is going to have to demonstrate the problems um, they have, meaning the problems uh, of the people already in exile, and the problems that are still yet to be faced by the people in Jerusalem. Um, and uh, in order to do that, it's not just going to be a um, uh, words. Uh, he's going to use some props. Uh, Yechesel is going to use some props, which God calls clay gola, implements of exile, which we'll come to and explain in the next verse. Let me just uh, mute everybody because we'll need to mute everybody again. There we are. Better. Kilafisha Adam Beteva Mispal Mehadvorim Shiira Yosamishpal Midvorim Shiishma. And the reason why God's going to create this demonstration, this play, so to speak, this enactment, is because it's the nature of man to act upon the things he actually sees in action, like a practical demonstration rather than something he only hears about from an individual. Therefore, since they were demonstrably still a rebellious group, both in Babylonia and in Yerushalayim, it's clear they're not going to be impressed by the mere words of the prophet or his, any of his rebukes. So, Rotsa Hashem Shiyasa Hanovi Begilui so God wills that the prophet openly and public, publicly performs some type of play, uh, some strange actions to teach the people and hint to the people regarding the dark future that awaits them. The hope being, the hope being, the word hope is um, uh, the operative word here. The hope being that as a result of actually seeing these strange, dem- strange demonstrations by Yechezkel, they'll change course, do some type of teshuva that would mitigate the forthcoming destruction in Yerushalayim. Now, the forthcoming destruction in Yerushalayim is already set in stone. 
the only question is, is how, how, how tragic is it going to be? And the only card left to play, uh, from the perspective of the Jews already in Babylon and the Jews still in Yerushalayim is to do some type of teshuva, late teshuva, which could mitigate the actual damage that God's prepared to inflict on the people in Yerushalayim and the people still already in Babylonia. So that is a sort of soft landing, so to speak, soft landing introduction to what's going on in this chapter. Um, and Nebavanels takes it uh, pretty softly, gently, just explains exactly what's going to happen here in this chapter. But the Chidar, Rav Chaim is much more accusatory than the Barbanel. And he says as follows. He says he's much more, he's much, his language is much stronger than uh, the Barbanels. He says, Ben Adon Basoch, base Mariata Yoshev. He says, you people, Koi, Adasomich Leha Kosov, after this, the description of the horrific forthcoming attractions expected in Yerushalayim seen by Yecheskel in the last four chapters and described to the people in Babylonia without any positive response for the, from them, they responded neither to the rebuke to the decrees that were made upon them, to the punishments that were coming, and to all the evil and all the tragedy that was about to come on upon them. Until Yechezko was forced to scream at them. Yechezko finally lost his temper with them and said to them, are you really satisfied? Are you really content with what I've just described to you? That there's going to be a massacre in Yerushalayim. Behind you, the Solchadaitu, the Yecheskel Shedavorov Yasa Peirus, and Yecheskel hoped very naively that his words, Yasa Peirus, that his words uh, and the descriptions of the horrors he had seen in his visions would bear fruit, Yasu Peirus would bear fruit, but take off your shuba b'tshuva, and the people would immediately, uh, people in the Babylonian exile, would immediately uh, do teshuva and send messages, send messages to Yerushalayim for them to do teshuva, and informing them of Yechezkel's dark prophecy, begging them uh, to pay attention, begging them to pay attention to the horrific imagery uh, of that prophecy, of the prophecy we've just been talking about for the last few months, in the hope that they would do some type of teshuva and mitigate the forthcoming cataclysm. Furthermore, Yecheskel hoped that the Jews in Babylon would be encouraged to build a shul, uh, as it says in the previous chapter, it said in the previous chapter, in chapter 11, verse 16, that uh, God would be prepared to listen to them if they'd build a, a Migdash Ma'at, like a, a mini base of Migdash, build a shul. Um, and that was like the comforting part of the dark prophecy. 
that if they're in exile and they're prepared to do teshuva, so there's no base on Mikdosh anymore, but they could build a shul uh, and go and daven that and do teshuva that. Maybe they'll do that. And Yecheskel was exasperated to see that even his words of comfort and consolation and God's open-door policy of the efficacy of prayer in exile had no effect on the Jews of Babylonia. They couldn't wait to get back on the golf course. Uh, They weren't interested in building a shul. They weren't interested in anything. They heard what Yechazkel had to say and uh, shook their heads and uh, were prepared to pay no attention to this. Hence, this prophecy, which he's saying in anger, uh, decrying his people um, as rebellious to the end, unwilling to look or reflect on a situation or even be bothered about the horrors Yechazkel just portrayed to them about what's going to happen in Yerushalayim. And um, so Yechezkel's at his wit's end here. Yechezkel, you know, and so God says, well, we've only got one thing left. We've only got one trick left in our bag. And as we're going to see, the only trick left in our ba- in their bag is not to speak to them anymore. They're not prepared to listen. The only thing they can do, uh, Yechezkel can do, is as God's going to show him, to, uh, explain to him to do now, is to give them a practical demonstration of what uh, exile looks like, proper exile. Not the exile they're in at the moment, but what the exile is going to look like when, uh, you know, a million Jews start uh, arriving in Babylonia in chains. And um, and that that we're going to see in the next possible. But before we do that, what's very interesting here is the language of God in this possible. Um if you look at the, 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 the verse two here, it's very interesting. God describes the Jewish people as a name lohem liros velo roll. They have eyes, but they don't see. Oz naim lohem velo shomeo. They've got ears, but they don't hear. Now that should remind you of something. And, um, the thing it should remind you of. Hallel. Is Hallel. Exactly. Right. Who, who shouted out Hallel? Um, Correct, in Hallel. The language of God here in this verse should remind you of Hallel. Uh, when we say full Hallel, uh, there's a section in it that refers to the worship of pagan gods, of Odazorah, paganism, idols. It's taken from Tehillim chapter 115, verses 4 to 7. And uh, again, we say this on <clears throat> when we say full Hallel, on the Yomim Noraim, on the, not Yomim Noraim, when we say it's on, uh, on first, first day Pesach and Sukkot and Shavuos and various other times during the year. At Sabayim Kesa Vazov Masa Yedayodom. But this, this chapter in Tehillim is talking about idols and pagan worship. It said the idols, they have idols of silver and gold, the handiwork of men. Perlohem Velo Yedabeyu. They have mouths, talking about the idols, they have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have a nose, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not feel. They have legs, but they do not walk. Lo yegu bigronov. 
nothing is heard from their mouth. Nothing is heard from their throat. Now, I want to suggest that the comparative language employed here by God is not coincidental. It it represents both a message of exasperation, but also a message of hope. Because on the one hand, on the one negative hand, God says to the Jewish people here, and he's talking not just to the Jews of Babylonia, he's talking to the Jews of Yerushalayim, because this message is designed for them as well. The idea here is what Yechezkel is going to do next should be portrayed to the Jews of Yerushalayim and they should do something about it. But God says to these Jews, um, and again, this is a message for the ages. And anyone that's, anyone that's living in uh, the land of Israel at the moment, this is the nine days. You know, all these, all this stuff couldn't come up at a worse time in, Jew, in the Jewish calendar. The things that are happening in the state of Israel at the moment. Not, I'm not being political in any way. Uh, I'm not interested in the left, the right, the pros, the cons. Those that are protesting this, those that are protesting that. I'm not interested. The whole thing. The whole thing is this. The whole thing is exactly what what. Yechezkel is describing here what Yechezkel is describing here the attitude of the Jews of Babylon and the Jews of Yerushalayim and Yehuda is exactly the same as the attitude of everybody here in, in Eretz Yisrael not everybody but most people uh, they've got eyes but they don't see even worse they've got ears but they're not prepared to listen to anybody else and this is what exas- exasperates God more than anything else, the lack of unity. But on the one hand here, God says, you Jews, uh, you're just like idols. You're just like inanimate objects, like idols. You're incapable of perceiving and listening to reason. You're incapable of looking at, perceiving, rationalizing what you see in front of your eyes. And you refuse to listen to anything somebody else tells you. You're just, you're just like an idol. You can sit in front of an idol, show him something, speak to him, and he's just an idol. Just, uh, like talking to the wall. They said, that's what you Jews are like. You're like idols. Impossible. You can't communicate with it. You're just inanimate. On the other hand, on the positive side, on the positive hand, whilst inanimate objects like idols do not have the potential to ever be anything more than lifeless entities. You Jews, you people, have the potential to snap out of your self-imposed slumber and catatonic state and pay attention and observe your current status and listen to advice about how to improve your situation, which is why God is now going to tell Yechezkel to give them a practical demonstration to wake them up. Now, what's what's absolutely fascinating what's absolutely fascinating is one of the things that's going to happen in Yerushalayim uh, I'll just tell you now that uh, there's a practical demonstration God's going to come up with a practical demonstration of um, how so to speak perhaps we'll see perhaps the attitude of the Jews in Babylon there perhaps the attitude of the Jews in Yerushalayim will change now I I don't want to ruin the party, but uh, nothing God's going to do here and nothing Yechesel is going to do is going to change anything. They're not going to pay any attention. They're not going to... It's all, it's all going to go downhill. So much so 
that they, there's going to be, uh, and I'm stressing this because it's the nine days, and, and I'm as concerned as anybody about the status that we that we find ourselves in in the land of Israel. And this is something that I hate to say, but it's the truth. And the reality is that um, before the Babylonians arrive in Yerushalayim, there's going to be a civil war over nonsense. There's going to be a civil war over nonsense. What should we do? And instead of coming together as a unified force and trying to find a solution to their problems when they're surrounded by the Babylonians, the Babylonians are on their way, instead of thinking about the enemy, all they can think about is themselves and their own differences. And they have a civil war and they kill each other inside Yerushalayim. And this doesn't just happen with the time of the destruction of the first temple. It happens at the time of the destruction of the second temple, when the Romans surround Yerushalayim. And the Jews, instead of thinking about how they can get themselves, extricate themselves from the problems, they decide to go get involved in a civil war in which many people get killed. Now, anyone that believes that these are things that only took place 2,500 years ago or 2,000 years ago at the time of the Second Temple just has to look at the streets of uh, the State of Israel today. Anyone that doesn't believe that this what what's happening in this country at the moment can lead to some very serious civil disobedience and violence and even murder is deluding themselves. And this is the key to being thrown out of the land. An absolute key to being thrown out of the land. Anyone that believes that we can't be thrown out of the land if we go to war with each other is deluding themselves because this is something that is absolutely for sure. We just had the Posuk in the parish in the last few weeks, the Issa de Araisa, the biblical prohibition of Hanifa Sa'oret, taking the land of Israel for granted and the Gasas Ruach and arrogance to the point of never listening to the opinions of other other people. And these are the things that get you thrown out of the land. And so that if there's anybody sitting here listening to this year that does not believe we can be thrown out of this land again for a third time, they are absolutely deluding themselves. And um, I hate to say it, but this is this is the facts of history. And this is the facts of God's approach or God's modus operandi to a lack of unity among the Jewish people. He'll tolerate God, as I've mentioned in the Zechariah Shir on many occasions, God will tolerate almost anything. He'll tolerate secular Jews eating chazir on Yom Kippur. Absolutely tolerate it. He'll tolerate breaking of Shabbos. He'll tolerate everything. What he won't tolerate is a breakdown in civil society. Once civil society breaks down, God says, enough for me. I'm not having it. You're gone. And it's not actually God that kicks you out of the land. Uh, as the Boston Rebbe said, it's the land that kicks, kicks you out. The land of Israel is a holy land, and it won't tolerate disunity. It won't tolerate civil war. It'll it immediately institute a um, a policy of removal. And as I said, I won't repeat it again, just for the last time. Anyone that 
doesn't believe that we can be thrown out of this land again and sent back into exile is absolutely deluding themselves. Anyway, pushing on. And, and, and I said, that's not a political statement. I, I, I'm not, I'm not taking political sides in any way, shape or form. What I'm criticizing is the attitude of Jews towards Jews. And uh, as I mentioned in the Echeskel Shield the other day, uh, anyone is, is, uh, can go and listen on, uh, it's gone viral, an interview with, um, a, <clears throat> an interview with a, um, lifeguard that was applying for a job as a lifeguard in the north and she was being interviewed and she had all the qualifications for the job and the interviewer said you know you've got all the qualifications and uh, this lifeguard said I just one condition before you offer me the job you should know that if there's a Haredi lady drowning I won't go in and save her I hate religious people that's 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 where we're at that's where we're at in the, in the land of Israel. So, yeah, you know, it, it, it's a very, it's a very short step. It's a very short step to civil war. And from civil war, it's a very, very short step to us being kicked out of here. God forbid a thousand times. Anyway, back to Yechezkel. And I, I said, this is not a political statement. I, I'm not, I'm not inclined either way politically. On to the Yechezkel. Sorry to be such a, not a bearer of bad news, but uh, just a warning from history, just a warning from Jewish history. Says God in verse three, Son of man, make for yourself implements of exile. And go into exile for a period of days in front of their eyes. And you shall go into exile from your place to various other places before their eyes. Perhaps they will realize what a rebellious house they are. So what's he telling him to do? The four themes of the previous verse now play themselves out in God's instructions to Yecheskel. Number one. The exile of Yehuda and Yerushalayim is coming. It's set in stone. Number two, the people in Babylonian, in, already in the Babylonian exile, and the people still left behind in Yehuda and in Yerushalayim don't want to see how that, that will play out. They're not interested in looking. They're not interested in listening. Number three, the people in Babylonian Yehuda don't want to hear about it. They want the the prophet to shut up and leave them alone. And therefore, number four, the whole house of Israel are in God's eyes, a rebellious house. So it's now time for a demonstration of exactly what exile looks like. So God says to him, God says to Yechezkel, you should make yourselves implements of exile. Now, what exactly are implements of exile? The truth is that when armed men come to your house to cart you off into exile, there's very little time to pack, right? That you, you can't tell them, well, can you just wait a second while we pack our suitcases? Um, you can't take anything heavy or valuable with you. You can't take your uh, piano with you. Um, 
And, you know, you can't stop, stop taking your silver and jewelry. You can't do anything because the invaders, the enemy are going to steal anything of value anyway. The, the reality is uh, that the order is given by the enemy to move out. You move out and it comes very suddenly, leaving only a short period of time to assess the essentials you're going to need. And you have to think on your feet, decide what you need to, what you can take with you. Um, that will give you the best possible chance of surviving a protracted journey into the unknown. Now, the Medrash in Eicha, which, again, this is so appropriate because this is the nine days and we're already at day six of the nine days <clears throat> and three days before Tishabav, the Medrash in Eicha describes what these implements of exile actually are or actually were. And the Medrash asks, what are implements of exile? So the, the Medrash says, Omar Rabkhia says, a leather flask, a rug, and a bowl. That's what they took with them into exile. Each and every one of them were taken for practical reasons because they served two purposes each. You can use a leather flask for kneading dough for bread, and you can use it as a pillow. You can take a, you take a bowl because you can eat and drink out of the bowl. And you take the rug for sitting on and to cover you, cover you while you're asleep to keep you warm. And, um, the Barabanel adds that obviously people who were dragged off into exile took with them the clothes they were wearing as well. Um, um, and you know, you, you get dragged off and, uh, you wear just, you just take the clothes off your back. Uh, and just the bare essentials you can put your hands on before the enemy comes into your house and drags you off and puts you in chains. Now, we don't really need to, we don't really need to, uh, in our generation, um, be told what this, this act that I'm going to show you anyway. Um, and if you want to know what it was like, and it, whether it was worse than this or the same as this or whatever it was. This is, this is, this is what it looks like. And uh, you should recognize this. Um, can everybody see? Everyone see the picture? Right. That's what it looks like. That's what it looks like when the enemy come to your house and they're dragging you up into exile. And, um, the picture you're seeing, can everyone see the picture? Uh, the picture you're seeing was taken in Lublin, in Poland, showing Jews with their meager belongings gathering in the street before deportation. So this is what we're talking about here. I'm not messing about here. This is this is what it looks like. You see the people, the kids, Nebuch, they've got the clothes on their back and they're carrying, not even all of them are carrying anything, but they're carrying a knapsack, whatever they can put their hands on. And look at their faces. They're going into exile. Most of them are going to be dead within a few days or a few weeks. Um, this is the real world. This is exile. This is not playtime. And God's not playing here. Um, I'm going to take this picture away. I only only did this picture because I knew I'd be giving this year during the nine days. Uh, not so much to get you in the mood for the nine days, but just to remind you of our history. That picture that you can see there is the picture of the Jewish people over the last 2,000 years. That is it. That is what we are. That's what we were. 
That's not what we plan to be. We don't want that again. That should be the past. It shouldn't be the future. It should be all in the past. But um, this is what God's telling him. God's telling him, let me just, uh, I'll stop the share because it's a very upsetting um, picture. Um, God's telling him that uh, this is this is this is what I want you to do. Yechezkel, gather together the clothes on your back, gather a few utensils, gather a a flask, uh, so that you you you'll be able to make a bit of bread. You can mix a you can mix the flour and water in a flask in the flask, and you can use it as a pillow. Take a bowl so you can eat and drink out of something, and take a rug so that you can. Uh, sit on it and you can use it to cover you, to keep you warm while you're asleep. Um, apart from that, you've got the clothes on your back and that's it. So the truth is that that picture you've just seen is really, really only the most recent incarnation of a scene that pervades history of the Jewish, of the Jewish people over the last 2,500 years. It, that picture reoccurs Every few hundred years throughout the last two and a half thousand years, uh, the description in these verses are the prototype of that imagery that will repeat itself over and over and over again until our time. Really, until our time, right up until the establishment of the state of Israel in 1948. So what is he told next? After gathering in these implements of exile, Yechezkel is told the following. Go into exile for a period of days in daylight. In daylight, in front of their eyes. And uh, there are two complementary ways of understanding uh, this instruction from God. Firstly, Yechezkel is told to pick up these meager possessions and start walking as if, if he, as if he was heading off into exile. And he should do it yomom, the Possek says. He should do it in the middle of the day so that everybody could see. The word le'enehem is crucial here. Because in the previous verse, God describes the Jews of Babylon and those still in Yehuda and Yerushalayim as a naim lohem liros v'lorov. They have got eyes, but they don't see. This demonstration of what going into exile actually looks like, performed in the middle of the day, forces the Jewish populace in Babylon to watch and understand the exile will have, how the exile will happen and how, how visible it will be, as clear as day, and that the inhabitants of Yushalayim believe that God will never exile us is clearly false. That's the prevail. If you remember from the previous chapters, at the moment in Yushalayim, the prevailing attitude is that God is never going to exile us. All the people that have, have been exiled, that's it. They're the ones that are going to be exiled, and we're going to be safe in Yushalayim. That's the prevailing attitude in Yushalayim at the moment. God says that's that's clearly false, and Yechezkel is told to demonstrate this idea in in front of their eyes in the middle of the day. They, they can't mistake what they're seeing. That's the first thing. Second thing, Yechezkel should repeat this task, Yomom. Yomom doesn't just mean in the middle of the day, but Yomom means over a period of days, consistently. He should do it, repeat it, over and over again, over a period of days. 
to drive home the message about what will be happening to the Jews of Yehuda and Yerushalayim over an extended period of time. Over a million people are going to have to be sent into exile. That The masses of Jews will be walking to exile over a protracted period of time. It all takes time. They're not taking the train to Babylonia. They're not taking a flight to Babylonia. They're going to be walking there in chains. Um, all the survivors of the massacres in Yerushalayim are going to be carted away. And then, he's told, once you've shown the people that this is, this is going to go on for days and days and days, there's going to be so many people sent into exile that it's going to go on for days and days and days, weeks. Then, then go into exile from your place to another place. Again, in front of their eyes. The second part of this verse. Again, there are two complementary ways of understanding this instruction. Firstly, God tells Yecheskel that he should perform this demonstration in multiple areas. Towns, villages, or everywhere where there are Jews in Babylonia, uh, where the first wave of exiles are now living, he should travel there and make this demonstration so that everyone can see for themselves exactly what awaits their brothers and sisters in Yehuda and Yerushalayim. And secondly, this idea of mimkomcha, el-mokom acher, from one place to another place, is also a description of how exile works for the Jewish people throughout their exiles. It's not as if the Jews were exiled to one place and then put roots down and stayed there forever. That's never been the nature of the exile for the Jewish people. The nature of the Jews in exile is that they would be constantly, they constantly would be shunted from one dark oppressive place, one dark oppressive country to another. Uh, and when they get there, they find that the new place is equally oppressive. Jews would arrive in a place where they would build houses, communities, live there for a time. But they would not remain in any city or any country for too long. They'd be continually exiled from here to there, from one country to another, as it was predicted in the Torah. And don't say you haven't heard this, says Yechezkel. This is a posit from the Torah. Uvagoyim, this is in Devorim chapter 28. Uvagoyim hoheim lo And among those nations, you will not be calm. You will not be able to relax. Velo yem manoach lekafraglecho. Nor will your foot find rest. God will give you a trembling heart. And dashed hopes. And a depressed soul. So the, 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 this idea, um, this powerful idea of what Jewish exile is, it's not just God told Yechezkel to go and perform this demonstration in all the cities of Babylon where there were Jews, but it's a statement about Jewish exile. Jewish people never find rest in any country. You might be there 200 years, 300 years, 400 years. But eventually the, the lights go out. And I, I mentioned in Shia the other day, the Jewish people are compared to the moon. The moon rises and rises and rises, just like the Jewish people go into a country of exile. 
And like the moon, they rise and rise and rise, but they reach their effigy in the middle of the exile, like the moon does in the middle of its cycle, and then starts to wane. And by, by the time the month ends, by the time the exile ends, the moon, the Jewish people are, are just a tiny, tiny amount of people. And can the last person to leave please switch the lights off? And that's been the story of our exile, uh, our exiles from all the countries of Europe, all the countries of North Africa, all the countries. And people say, well, you know, I've heard somebody, somebody once said to me, you know, that's what it, not what it's like in America, right? The Galta Medina. But the reality is, you know, America's been around for 250 years. The Jews were in Spain for 800 years. The Jews were in Poland for 800 years. And just look how many Jews there are in Poland now. Just look how many Jews there are in Spain now. Somebody, eventually the lights go out. Eventually you're thrown out. And anyone that doesn't believe we can be thrown out of countries nowadays is fooling themselves. And again, this is the idea that, uh, you know, we don't need, this was, this was the idea of Nebuchadnezzar. It, it, it's even sad to mention it, that the reform movement um, advised their German citizens to describe themselves, we are Germans of the Mosaic persuasion. I mean, just taking that, that sentence in context said before the Holocaust, and um, think about a Jew that would be thinking about saying something like that today. That we are Jews of the Mosaic persuasion. That, uh, you know, we're safe here, right? We're safe in France. We're safe in Germany. We're safe here. We're safe there. Jews are never safe. Jews are never safe. The only place, the only place that Jews can be safe in is the land of Israel, in a state where God uh, is openly protecting the land. And uh, you can't be safe in the Golas. As display, I mean, who would have believed the anti-Semitism you see in the United States today? Attacks on shores. France, of course, is much worse. Um, Jews being killed, supermarkets, women being, Jewish women being thrown out of uh, uh, top story windows. And the perpetrators not even suffering a prison sentence. These are things that we would never have thought 30 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago. So this is the dark truth about um, being a Jew in Golis. This is the dark truth that the only people that don't realize it's true are the people that soon find it out. And everybody in Europe is finding it out. And people in America are starting to find it out. And God said this. God said in the Torah. Like, it's not as if you weren't warned. You will not find calm. You will not be calm. You will not be safe when you're among the nations. Nor will your foot find rest. You won't become citizens there. Yeah, you'll be Americans. You'll be, you'll be British. You'll be French. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, as he, as the, the Posit says here, powerfully, the definition of Jewish exile is we go from one place to another till finally we return, which thank God in our day we have. Now, after seeing this demonstration by Yecheskel of what exile means and what exile looks like, 
God says right at the end, this is the key words of this verse, verse 3, that um, that God says to Yechezkel right at the end of this verse, the key words, what are the key words? Ulai Yiru ki base Mary Hema. That uh, you, Yechezkel, you're going to give them this demonstration of what real exile looks like, what real exile feels like. Ulai Yiru ki base Mary Hema. Perhaps they'll realize what a rebellious nation they are, what a rebellious house they are. Once again, a two-layered message contained in these words. The simple meaning of these words are this. Perhaps, obviously, after seeing this demonstration of what exile is, the Jews of Babylonia will listen to what their hearts are now telling them, that the words of the prophets that preceded Yechezkel and Yechezkel's warnings his warnings were not idle threats. And as the Matsuda he says here, the Matsuda Stovit says here, Perhaps the Jews will finally take heart, take the Musa, take the rebuke to heart, given to them by multiple prophets over hundreds of years, and surrender their hearts to doing Teshuva. That's the simple meaning of these words. Perhaps they'll realize what a rebellious house they are. But Rashi takes the idea a bit further here. Rashi says, God's hope is that the people already in Babylon, already in exile, will ask Yechezkel the meaning of this demonstration. They'll question him. What are you doing? What are you up to? What does this mean? What can we do about it? So that the prophet can tell them that it symbolizes the exile that awaits King Sidkiyahu and his people in Yerushalayim. Remember, there is still a king in Yerushalayim at this stage. His name is Sidkiyahu. Now, we're going to see that Yechezkel doesn't mention him by name, but he, he alludes to him. And uh, Rashi says the hope here is that... Um, that um, the people will realize that they need to get a message to King Tzidkiyahu and the people in Yerushalayim um, and inform them what they've seen and what the, the trouble that awaits them in Yerushalayim and pleading with them to do Teshuva to mitigate all the evil that's about to befall, befall them. And um, just a footnote here. Let's make a point before we do the next verse. I'm actually going to stop here. Um, a little bit earlier. I uh, just want to make a footnote here. The most, again, I just want to stress the most significant word in this last verse, in verse three here, is the word ulai, perhaps. Perhaps the Jews will pay attention to Yechezkel taking his implements of exile and demonstrating what exile looks like uh, to heart. It expresses the idea that God is not very hopeful that the Jews of Babylon or the Jews of Yehuda and Yerushalayim will pay any more attention to this demonstration by Yechezkel than they did to the constant warnings of the prophets for hundreds of years. Ulai implies doubt. God, so to speak, is very skeptical. And to be honest, God was right to be skeptical. And uh, again, this is the week of Tisha B'Av, so it's appropriate to quote a medrash from Echo, the the... This is a very, very dark verse. Um, 
I know people don't study Eicha, but perhaps they should. Um, in Eicha, chapter 3, verse 16, the, um, the Novi, Yirmiyahu, says the following words, Vayagris b'chatsas shinai, my teeth were forced to grind themselves on gravel. And uh, everybody wants to know what he means, that my teeth were forced to grind themselves on gravel. And Rashi explains his words of Yirmiyahu. He says the word b'chatsats, b'chatsats, chatsats are fine pebbles that are present in the dust. The exiles, he says, the exiles from Yehuda and Yushalayim, when they came into exile and they walked from Yushalayim to Babylonia, were forced to knead their dough to make bread in pits that they had to dig in the ground. And gravel would enter the dough, meaning that when they ate their bread, their teeth would crack on the gravel that got caught up in the dough. As God said to Yechezko, here in this verse, if you want to know what's going to happen to you and you take into heart what's going to happen to you, going to exile, make yourself implements of exile. And as we said before, one of those implements of exile was a leather flask for, for kneading dough and um, using it as um, uh, a pillow. But it was designed to be used to knead dough, to make bread and to break cake. Says Rashi, quite obviously, they did not listen to Yechezkel. And in fact, they ridiculed him and made no preparations for exile. Consequently, when they were carted off into exile, they were bereft of any of these tools of exile, these implements of exile, and were ultimately forced to make bread on their journey using a hole in the ground as a container to knead their dough. And the dough became contaminated with gravel and small pebbles. So when they ate the bread, they cracked their teeth on the pebbles, on the gravel. As the Possek says again in Eicha, chapter 3. So when you see this, when you see this chapter, when you hear this verse on, th- on Wednesday night, chapter 3, verse 16, you know exactly what's going on here. By Yagres, Bachatzas, Shinai. That when the Jews were being carted off into exile, they hadn't. They had paid no attention to Yechezkel's demonstration, and they were. They dismissed him, and they told him to mind his own business and shut up, and uh, get lost. We're not interested. So they went into exile, and uh, they had to make their bread in on the ground, and the bread got in, contaminated with grit and gravel and pebbles, and as he, as the Yirmiyo says. By Yagres Bachatsas Shinai. It caused their teeth to crack. So that's Pshat and that Posit there in chapter three of Echah. So when you're li- listening to Echah on, um, when you're listening to Echah on, uh, Wednesday night, so you know what that, though, when you come across those words, you know what it means. That, the, that was one of the, uh, that was, that was, you know, that's what they ate when they were walking, when they walked a thousand miles into exile. Now, Verse four. Verse four. God continues with His instructions to Yechezkel. Vahod seitzi kolecho kichli gola yomom leinehem, and you shall bring out your implements as implements for exile, 
day by day. Day by day. And then, once you've been doing that for a few days, during the day, constantly, day after day, then, then you should go out in the evening, before they rise, like those who depart to exile. Now, before I finish, I want to finish, sorry, I want to finish a, a little bit early today, because I've got your site and... Uh, I've got a Hebrusa at six o'clock. But um, has anybody noticed, can I just ask a question? I'll leave a question with you. I know it's been a bit of a dark shear, but uh, I think that's appropriate for the week we're in. Um, can anybody notice one word that keeps occurring in this chapter that's going to keep occurring over and over and over and over again? Mum. Sorry? Mom? Mary. No. Mary. No. Mary, Mary, quite contrary. No. The word it is la'enehem. La'enehem. What we're going to see in between verses 3 and 7, the word enehem is going to occur seven times. And there's a, there's a very, very good reason for it, as we're going to see later. But again, it occurs uh, twice in this verse. Verse 4. will bring out your implements, the implements of exile, for a long period of days. And then, and go out in the evening, like going out, like you come out, like you're going out into exile, at night, in front of their eyes. Now, this stress on the word lay nahem is very important. And uh, again, when we get to verse 7, we'll see that, um, you know, it just seems like uh, repetition for no reason. But it isn't. There's a point to all this. Um, so, again, it's 5.57. So I think we'll stop here. Uh, one second, there's a question here before we before we round it up. Uh, David Barrett. Zichronos Tovim. I don't know what that means. Um, I don't know what Zichronos Tovim means. Okay. Um, okay. So we'll, we'll pick up, we'll pick it, pick it up, please God, next week. Um, from verse four. I hope everyone enjoyed the shir. I know it's a bit dark, but what can you do? It's the nine days and it's yeah. certainly put us in the right mood. Yes. Sorry about that. Um, um, Nevertheless, I hope you not enjoyed the shir, but I hope you got something out of the shir. Please, God, you'll have a, we'll have a Nahoma, um, Tishabav, and, um, we'll have a Gaula, and uh, the worst won't happen. But, uh, in the meantime, I wish you all a, uh, an easy fast at Tom Cal, and, um, I'll see you, please, God, in health and happiness, uh, next Monday, same time, same place, five o'clock. Harry, Harry, one comment. <laughs> One comment. I can't believe for one moment that Hashem brought us back here after what we went through in the Shoah and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. So we're going through a, a little bit of a, a a little bit of a family fight. So to, to yeah. bring to the point to, to accentuate that we're going to have a civil war here. I think it's a little. Bit... I'm not saying we're going to have a civil war here. I said we're in danger. It yes. could lead could lead to a civil war. It's done it. It's happened before. 
Don't ever don't those the last civil the last serious civil war between the Jews uh, Jews and Jews cost sixty thousand lives. Sixty thousand lives. So don't ever think it can't happen. Don't ever and you're talking about great great men, great Sadiqim. Going to war they thought was Lashem Shamai. So take a warning from history. We need to this needs to be nipped in the bud. And again, I'm not talking about I don't come from any political perspective. I think they're all corrupt low lives that uh, got no business running the country from all walks of uh, of the Knesset. The majority of them have got no you got a guy there who's been in prison in charge of the finances. I mean, you know, I mean, what sort of a country does that? You know, uh, 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 this they call themselves the Knesset, but uh, after the Anshe Knesset Zagadola, nothing could be more different than the current Knesset than the way they speak to each other, the way they speak about each other, the the animosity, the sinaschinon that exists there, an example to the whole country, and um, I'm just making a point that uh, from a perspective of history and empirical evidence and pragmatism. Um, don't discount that Jewish people can um, can 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 engage in this type of behavior, uh, and the the you know. Lahavdil, today is my husband's eighty seventh birthday. Oh, Mazalto, Mazalto, Mazalto. So that's a great way to end the shit. Great way to end the shit with a smile. That's uh, in in Australia, eighty seven is uh, is a very important number. Because mm-hmm. they're Michigan, they're on the other side of the world. So the number thirteen in the northern hemisphere, the number thirteen is mm-hmm. like a an important number. In in Australia, eighty seven is because it's thirteen short of a hundred. Typical Australian logic. Anyway, um, cult of to everybody, and uh, we should only have Nachom and Besoros Tovos. I'll see you, please God, in health and happiness next Monday, same time, same place. Cult of. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.